1: Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, a new podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller, and this week we have an interview from the Archive. In 2011, I spoke to David Bellos of Princeton University about his book on translation, Is That a Fish in Your Ear?, a book that was praised as brilliant by fellow translator Michael Hoffman, among many others. Its perhaps initially puzzling title is a reference to the all-translating Babelfish, from Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. When we met in Bath, I began by asking David if he thought that translation was a field particularly beset with misunderstandings about what it is.
2: Well, I don't know about particularly. I'm sure there are many other fields of human endeavour where people get the wrong end of the stick all the time. But um, being a translator and having tried to teach undergraduates about translation, I'm particularly aware of the huge gap there is between just how interesting translation really is, how broad, how widespread, how ancient, uh, how multiple, and the very simple ideas that the layman has about it, and the way in which, well, five, six, seven ancient clichés about translation. Seem to shut off people's minds and allow them not to think about it. So that's why I read the book, is really to op- open up the field and to t- tell people, first of all, it's not as simple as that, and then on the other hand, but actually it's much more interesting than that. And
1: it's not an exaggeration to say that translation does make the world go round, doesn't it?
2: Well, we live in a world of translation. One of the things that I sort of use as a kind of mind exercise at the beginning of the book is to try and make people imagine what our world would be like if we didn't have translation, and uh, there have been historical circumstances, and there still are some historical circumstances, circumstances where translation is rejected or not practiced or or, or um, kept at a very low level. But, and I introduced that at the beginning to make people realize just how endemic to our civilization and to global civilization translation has been and is and that it's completely impossible to imagine most of the kinds of trade, diplomacy, bargaining, communication, uh, cultural goods, scholarship uh, that go on in the world today without multiple um, and massive practice of interlingual translation. I mean, you wouldn't even be able to put your flat pack furniture together without translation or read the guarantee slip on your new watch. There's hardly a branch of any hours living in the world today in which translation isn't present, even though you might not notice it.
1: And as you suggest, it's it's a rather under-examined cultural phenomenon, isn't it? There's there's high-level theoretical discourse, which most normal people cannot penetrate. But in, in terms of being part of the general public discourse in the Anglo-Saxon world, it doesn't really figure very highly. But I would sense it figures less highly than you would believe its status merited.
2: Well, it's not, is it isn't really about status. Translation is held at bay from people's consciousness, from their conceptions of things, partly because it's very scary. One of the things that you learn when you do translation or when you start to really study it a bit and you start to learn of its history and you start to learn of the linguistic and philosophical problems that are involved is that unless you protect yourself with some silly rigid ideas about how languages look like work like mechanosets sets and so forth then you have to accept you have to take on board that the meaning of something is always a little bit or a lot provisional that there is no final definitive meaning of anything and that translation is a jolly good way of finding out what the meaning is in the context where it occurs, but that it can all, the context can always change and the meaning can always be adjusted, if not completely reinvented. And I guess most people don't like to realize that, or don't want to realize that. They like to think that things that say X say X and forevermore will say X, and that that's what they mean. Actually, the world is much more interesting when you get your mind round the difficulty there is in saying you know where the meaning of something lies the only real way to actually answer that question is to translate it that 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 is the extraction of meaning uh, from an utterance
1: i'm active as a translator too and i i believe that translators are the most careful readers that it's possible to find of any given text
2: well they jolly well should be yes (laughs) um.
1: <laughs> because, because you talk about skip reading, don't you? Say most of us, when we're reading, do sometimes skip. We don't have to understand, absorb everything. But with translating, you do. You can. Well, <laughs> I suppose if you're unprofessional, you can skip things. But, but really, there's a sort of obligation upon you to to solve the the problem of every piece of, of language that is before you.
2: That's right. In our tradition, in our conventions, uh, which are now widely spread, they're not universal, and they're not historically universal either. But in the culture that we now inhabit a translator has to deal with everything that's there he's not allowed to cut out difficult paragraphs or skip a word didn't quite understand as you say when, we, when we're when reading things for ourselves whether they're translations or not but when we're reading them for ourselves we often do that um, and that's how we learn more words actually we just guess from context uh, but yes a translator has got to work much harder than that and unravel at least provisionally and to his or her own temporary satisfaction a meaning in which all the parts of the sentence or paragraph or page can be accounted for what
1: do you think makes a good translator is it possible to sort of boil that down into some essentials
2: well, I will take a leaf out of um, uh, the book of my friend and publisher, Christopher McElhose, the director of the Harvard Press, who's often been asked that question. And uh, he, he, he always says, oh, somebody immensely old, a good translator, has been around for ages and has read absolutely everything and picks up every illusion and every reference. But I would say somebody immensely young as well at the same time, who is completely up to date with where people are at now and with the little subtle changes in the contemporary meanings of words and phrases and terms of language and so forth. In the English speaking world, of course, a good translator is also somebody who has got a handsome income from somewhere else and is doing this in order to do it well. And not in order to earn a living because the living you can earn by only translating is so pitiful you might have to do it in a bit of a hurry yep. and not lavish well all the care that would be rewarding to you and to your reader this isn't the case in some other languages um japanese for example translators could live properly as translators a profession so there we are somebody well off immensely old and immensely young
1: Now, you just mentioned this business of capturing or of being sensitive to allusions and references. Is it possible, though, for the translation to render those things, all those subtleties and nuances when it comes to producing a translation, however attuned to them the translator may be?
2: Well, obviously, there are two answers to that question. One is no, and the other is yes. What our immensely old and immensely young translator has to do is to make a judgment as to which amongst the actually infinitely many connections, illusions, echoes, and so forth that he can or she can hear in the uh, source text are worth preserving when that original context is completely changed uh, because your, your original is no longer talking to that audience with that setup and so forth and how many of them can be brought over and used to educate the reader of the target text in the culture and, actually, fabric of the original. That's a judgment call. Also, in some cases, you wouldn't even want to try. There's often reasons for a kind of subtle censorship in translation where there are things that are either not relevant to the target audience, or would be irritating to them or would actually get you the wrong kind of reaction for the work as a whole if so forth. These are one-off judgments, word by word, phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence, page by page and book by book, and that—that—that that, that is the art and skill of the translator to to make those judgment calls. I mean the answer is no for a trivial reason that the echoes and references, allusions and and sort of uh, the baggage that, let's not say a book, any sentence brings with it, is infinite. There is always more to which it is connected. So that even you just repeat a sentence in the same language. Well, it's not the same because first of all, unlike the first time, it's the second and that's already has a meaning that it's a second. Secondly, the time is not the same and something would have changed in the context that will give a slightly different echo so you know this is also something that i really try to persuade people in my book that they have to abandon this idea that any that in language uh, in in the uses of language any two utterances can be identical they can't be we shouldn't be deluded by the way we print copies of books to think that saying or writing something a second time even if it is the same in terms of letters, that um, this is actually the same utterance, it isn't.
1: And you make the point early in the book that if you give the same text to a hundred translators, you will get a hundred different translations. You will not get any two versions which are identical. Which raises an interesting point about how you then evaluate <coughs> those translations. Because will some of those translations be better than others, and will that be a subjective judgment? You know, based on these these sort of harmonics of, of language that some, that some people can hear and some people can't. How does one sort of evaluate what is a better translation?
2: Uh, when I make that point in my book, I'm not talking about better and worse translations. I'm saying that if you give a page to 100 competent translators, the chances of their final texts being identical in every respect are close to zero. This is partly because the English language, like any language, is a pretty fuzzy thing. Actually, English is more fuzzy than most. I mean, you know, do you know how to write break up? I mean, with a hyphen, two words. You know, translators make different choices at that level. They will put commas in different places. They put full stops in different places. They will use slightly different, even where these 100 versions do all say the same thing, are all acceptable translations of the source, Language is a sufficiently flexible, indeterminate and un, mm. un, unmechanical kind of thing for the chances of absolutely identical manipulation of it by 100 different people, is really close to zero. That's the point I'm trying to make. The question you're asking, though, is about something much more tricky <laughs> and that is, uh, uh, you know, who, who is the guardian? Who is the judge? Who, who, who says this is right and that is wrong?
1: Well, not even right and wrong, but better and
2: and worse. Better and worse. Um, If we're talking about a really important document, like an aircraft maintenance manual, those who can judge which is the correct translation are those who know about aircraft maintenance. If we're talking about the interpretation of a tearful witness in court on trial for something awfully serious... The only person who can really make a judgement as to whether the translation is correct is another translator. And you have to put your trust in the professional ethics of the corporation of translators. If we're talking about the kind of classic chestnut I suspect you have in your mind, but which is actually only a tiny part of the world of translation, uh, let's say... I'm thinking of a Rilke sonnet. Say so. uh, Yes, the Rilke sonnet. OK. Well... There's been far too much argument about this, actually. Who knows what an acceptable translation of a poem is? I come down firmly on one side, which is that an acceptable translation of a poem is a poem. And if it works as a poem for you, then it's good. Other people, I think, imprisoned by a rather more rigid and perhaps almost religious view of the sanctity of the original than I am, would say that if the poem somehow represent, if the translation somehow represents in its written form, those features of the original that I, the critic, claim to be the keys to the interpretation of this poem, then that's a good translation. And those two principles sometimes uh, clash. They don't always overlap. They don't always meet in the same place. But, you know, I mean, in the end, with the translation of literature, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and... Uh, since literature is a cultural value, those translations that become part of the receiving culture uh, that enrich it and and, and, um, and develop it are to be valued. Um, those that fall flat on their faces and into a black hole may not be bad translations, but we don't value them the way we value, I don't know, Constance Garnett or <laughs> those who really have made a difference to the receiving culture uh, because of their... Qualities of um, well of judgment as to what, how much, and how to bring over something thoroughly different and alien like Dostoevsky.
1: I thought one of the most interesting things in the book, David, was when you talk about the third code and how translation tends towards the centre. And I wondered if you could just explain to listeners what you mean by that and say whether you think that means there's something rather conservative innately about the activity of translation as opposed to perhaps more exploratory uses of language that that writers engage in.
2: Thank you for asking that because this is one of the few areas where professional linguists and actually contemporary scholarship uh, does seem to be making a real and, and, and unprecedented contribution to understanding what it is that goes on in translation. The third code is a term adopted not that long ago by by a number of of scholars who've been quite struck that that, now we can look at uh, quite large corpora of texts automatically because they're now computer-readable and you don't have to do it with filing cards and guesswork. That There are, in some languages, um, Norwegian and Swedish and French have been looked at in particular by particular people whose articles I quote, there are um, deviations between the statistical norms of the language as written in a particular genre by people who are writing that language, and the language of books of exactly the same kind translated into that language from somewhere else. And in one case, in, in the Swedish case, which, what, what has been observed is a, a kind of a process of contamination of Swedish Uh, by a particular device of English that then gets or has been then taken over in Swedish, but used slightly differently, but is recognizably the fingerprint of a translation, or of a, a, not of a translation, but translation practice on quite a large scale. In French, uh, the evidence that I've looked, I've come across so far, is of something slightly different, and it gets more towards the, question, the point of the question you're asking, where a particular um, syntactic device, which is perfectly correct in French, gets used far less in novels translated into French than in novels written in French. And even more marked is that that particular syntactic device in the translated texts is restricted to particular situations, whereas it's much more widely and generally used in native language. You know, we're talking about fifty, hundred, thousand 100,000 words, stretches, you know, these are not little examples, these are over, over big stretches. There's clear statistical evidence. And, and, and by many different authors and translators, so it's not to do with any one particular yeah. person. That French example struck me because in my own experience as a translator over these many years, into English which isn't really a language but a whole welter of different ways of saying things that are vaguely mutually comprehensible. I have of course worked with British publishers and with American publishers and of course I write in my language and I get edited one way or the other and the what, what has struck me what I've learned over the years is that um, Because of the kind of unbounded nature of the English language, translations tend to be moved towards not one particular variety of English, but towards a variety of English that nobody actually speaks or writes naturally. And that is that large part of English that is not marked by an Americanism or by a Britishism or an Australism, the kind of the neutral middle ground so that it causes no uh, offense or irritation in any of the major parts of the English-speaking world. And putting all these things together, it does seem to me that translation moves towards the center. And I don't know whether I'd say it's more conservative, but in a sense, translation, the language of translations, at least in modern Western Europe, which is what I'm talking about, is more central, is less regionally marked, cool. less dialectical, uh, dialectal, sorry <laughs> it might be dialectical, it's less dialectal.
1: It's, it's, it's an area in which it renounces trying to match all the, the nuances of register of the original isn't it, consciously or unconsciously? Not all, no. It or, renounces
2: or, or, quite specific parts. Ah, yes. it's, it's sort of, it's sort of, there's a sort of class and status element, yep. isn't there? Yes, it's very interesting. You can of course match high register and various forms of professional register office language you can match speech rhythms and familiar but when it gets to the really vulgar translators don't like to do that <laughs> above all when it gets to the peasant and geographically Identifiable location, then you don't do it at all. Uh, that I mean, if you're doing a novel from German in which one of the characters is a Bavarian dairy farmer who speaks in marked dialectal German that is consonant with his position as a provender well, you can't invent a form of English which connotes being a Bavarian dairy farmer. And I guess you'd probably all agree that to try and replace that in the English translation with Texas cowboy slang may be very funny, but it's actually profoundly wrong because he's not a Texas cowboy, he's a Bavarian dairy farmer. So that level of uh, regional rootedness that some forms of language mean is pretty much just abandoned in translation. Some translators have tried to do it, uh, to, to, to invent, as it were, synthetic forms of dialectal English to represent the dialect of, I don't know, a Bengali street urchin, but the, 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 uh, I think these usually fail. And, and most translators won't do it and won't try to do it in contemporary culture, n- nor in 19th century. I, I, I quote Baudelaire translating Edgar Allan Poe. Baudelaire into French just doesn't even attempt to represent the way Poe does the accent of an African American servant. He just has him speak normal French. And th- this is typical, this characteristic. So now it isn't true that a translator has to abandon all attempt to represent social and dialectal nuance is just some kinds it's specifically the regional ones yeah I, I give examples the other way around i mean you know i mean how do you translate you know the glaswegian how does it go on into french well bonsoir and if you translate any other thing in french regional Vulgar dialectal street French, it would not mean the same thing. Because housing on marks you as a Glaswegian, and nothing in French marks you because there aren't any French Glaswegians. Well, there are a few now, but um, and it's that as a, way, a self-identifying function of linguistic variation that translation can't do, uh, can't do and shouldn't do. Uh, it's, it's just not part of what it can be translated.
1: That's raised really the interesting notion of hierarchies within languages of of levels of discourse and another very interesting idea which I took away from the book was this idea of translating up and translating down now tell me what you mean by that because working between French and English I suppose we're we're not we're probably not as sensitive to this as perhaps other um, translation pairs might
2: be. Oh, I think the French and English have been rivalrous about which way is up and which way is down for about five hundred years. Yes, but
1: it's probably it's probably a bit of a seesaw. Whereas in in other in other instances, it it's 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 kind of clear. It's it's much
2: clearer. (laughs) Um, These are terms of my own invention. Uh, Maybe other scholars have got much better ways of saying it. I don't know. But it just struck me that in almost all cases, the relationship between any two languages is not symmetrical the most obvious hierarchical relationship was between all the European vernaculars and Latin for the thousand years of Latin dominance. Latin was the language of greater generality, of greater prestige, and many things were translated from Castilian or from Italian or from English even into Latin so that they could be read more widely around Europe and in many cases, then translated back down again into vernaculars with a more specific, uh, numerically more limited and certainly less prestigious uh, field of, uh, of readership. It's very striking throughout the world nowadays that translating into English is always translating up because English is that general language. It's the language that gives you access to the rest of the world or to a large part of the rest of the world. It's the language of, of, of uh, knowledge transfer and the establishment of reputation and so forth. But you know, you, you sort of then think about it in lots of other cases, in cases of various other kinds of empires, like the Habsburg Empire, which had a particular language regime, or the Ottoman Empire, which had a different and quite particular language. But in all these circumstances, well, in terms of the Soviet Union now, empire, they are interestingly different kinds of regime, but in all cases, It's clear that the the relationship between the languages that are being translated is not one of of parity. Now the European Union is a unique and absolutely extraordinary experiment that goes against this. Uh, The European Union has established in its Treaty of Rome in 1957 language parity throughout all the languages of the European Union. It's a great invention. It's a brilliant idea. And it works. I mean, it costs a lot of money and has its own problems and it's quite difficult to make it work. But it does work. It works because politically we would like the world to be like that, of a level playing field of network languages where things passing from one to the other are not passing up or down. But it is exceptional. I mean, it it is the world we live in uh, insofar as we are European. But it is exceptional and uh, uh, I can find no pre-existing model of that kind. But even in the European Union, you know, there's up and down, uh, in effect, because there are the four working languages. What working languages means, <laughs> the ones that matter, <laughs> uh, the central languages, so there's French, German, Italian, um, uh, and English. Yeah.
1: Can you tell me about the splendeur and misère of being a translator? What what, what keeps you doing it? What are the what are the satisfactions and the, the dissatisfactions of being a, a translator?
2: If you're asking me a personal question, uh, I will say that I've been a teacher of languages uh, all my life. I won't quite say how long that is, but awfully long. And so I've been involved, as it were, with language learning, language teaching, and the use of translation in a pedagogic way um, since forever. But I was uh, 40 years old before I thought that there was something I really wanted to translate, that I really wanted to do, and that was Georges Perec's Life of User's Manual. In a sense, it was translating that that a taught me to write, and b taught me about translation. And it so happened that I found that I could actually do it.
1: And you chose, a, has to be said, you chose a, a particularly challenging text
2: to cut your teeth on. Um, it's horrendous. <laughs> well, actually, that's not strictly true. There are some exploits in it that are horrendously difficult, but there are large wadges of text that are actually not that hard to translate, I mean, that are, that are plain prose and perfect, very meticulous and precise prose. Uh, you have to use a lot of reference works a lot of dictionaries, but that's fun, that's alright. But anyway, having done that, I found that I could do it. And what keeps me at it is the feeling that translating is a, for me personally, a, a wonderful use of my particular and limited talents, because it, it bridges the creative and the scholarly. I mean, it calls into play knowledge, but it's also a little bit creative. And I, it, I, I like being able to join those two together. Uh, but the, the third thing that keeps me at it is there are just so many wonderful books that I either come across or that publishers shove in front of me and that I, w- I would love to have written and fabulous thing about being as a translator is that you can. Yes. <laughs> you can have written uh, a couple of masterpieces. Again, so, so when someone re- reads Life He Uses Man, are they reading
1: Perek or are they reading David Bellos? I
2: suppose that's a simple and a deep question at the No, it is a deep question. I, I actually consider it at one or two points in the book because in terms of uh, um, unconscious but probably also unmanipulable aspects of language, they're reading Bellos. It probably has the linguistic fingerprint of me that is probably unfalsifiable by anybody else. But as I say in the book, I'm quite glad that only a large computer program will be able to know that for sure. But they're most certainly reading Peck. I mean, you know, the stories, the characters, the plots, the structure, uh, the echoes, the illusions, the references, those are Georges Peck's. I, 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 those are, uh, re- not reproducible, that's the wrong word, those are, uh, pass through into the English remake in massive quantity. So I'd say you're reading about 98% Georges Perec and maybe 2% David Bellos.
1: I was talking to David Bellos about his book Is That a Fish in Your Ear? which is available in paperback and as an e-book from Penguin. You can find out more about it on the Penguin website. Do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. And if you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you could also catch up on any interviews you've missed. Coming soon, James Serple on how scientific understanding of the domestic dog has advanced by, forgive me, leaps and bounds in the past 20 years. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.